in part seven today of our study on how we got our Bible. And just a brief recap of last time we talked about how we came to regard the 27 books of the New Testament as the inspired word of God. Talked about a man named Marcion who was <clears throat> very uh, extreme in his views of what was biblical, what wasn't, and he would cut out many portions of what we regard as the New Testament, limit it to just portions of Luke and uh, some of Paul's letters. And so that made the church around Marcion's time have to think about what books are actually part of God's Word. We talked about some of the criteria of that and how, for the most part, it was things like, is it written by an apostle or a close associate of the apostle? Does it does it agree with the rest of Scripture? Much like we talked about with the Old Testament. Um, we talked about some of the books that were accepted by all. Almost all the books in the New Testament were accepted by all Christians as God's Word, about 20, 20 of them out of 27. There were a few disputed ones like Hebrews and James and so forth. But just over, over time, over the course of a, a few centuries, by the end of the, say, 300s, the, the canon was pretty well understood and pretty well set in the minds of most Christians. Now, having talked about the canon, that is the determination of which books were God's word, I want to talk today about the, the transmission of the New Testament from the original manuscripts into the early centuries of the church. Obviously, we don't have photocopies of Paul's letters or whatever it might be. And so there's lots of challenges from the world about is the, the book we have on our hands remotely like the, the writings of Paul or Matthew, Mark, any of those men from ancient history, right? 2,000 years ago is a long time for these things to be transmitted. And so I want to talk about the transmission process and also as time permits today, look at different kinds of transmission errors that came in and how scholars tried to correct them. Now, turn with me to Second Timothy. And this is going to be kind of a, may seem like a introduction that's not really relevant, but it, it will be, trust me. Second Timothy, talking about the transmission of the New Testament. If you look at Second Timothy chapter 1, you might remember that Paul is in a prison in Rome, uh, verse 16 of chapter 1 says, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not in prison. And Paul is writing shortly before his expected death at the end of the book, near the end, chapter 4. Paul says, for I am already poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's not talking about leaving Rome, going somewhere else. He's talking about leaving this life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So whatever time Paul had left, he basically figured he's, he's at the finish line. He's, he's done with his ministry. Even if he has a few more months to live, they're going to be in a Roman prison. He won't be able to do all the things he might want to do outside spreading the gospel in the world. And Paul here in 2 Timothy, as you read this letter, he doesn't have the expectation of being released as he did in Philippians. Say He wrote Philippians maybe five or six years earlier. He said in Philippians 2.24, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So Paul in his prison epistles had a more optimistic view about whether he would stick around or not. 
Second Timothy, he doesn't have that kind of outlook. We're not sure exactly where Paul wrote from, but or wrote to Timothy rather. Um, but probably Timothy was in Ephesus. Timothy was in Ephesus when Paul wrote First Timothy, and Timothy may still have been there. Also, this letter may have been carried by Tychicus. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Paul says, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And it may be that Tychicus actually had this letter he's carrying for the Apostle Paul to Timothy. In fact, Tychicus, we don't really know much about him. He might have not thought much about this man, but he actually shows up at several key points. He is in uh, Ephesians and uh, Colossians. You might remember that Ephesians and Colossians have very similar themes, probably written at the same time to the same area uh, of the world, roughly. Um, and so we have this man, Tychicus, probably carried Paul's letters to Ephesus and Colossae. Um, Ephesians uh, 6, 21-22 says, uh, and notice I've, I've broken these out so you can see the parallelisms. They're almost, they're very much the same. So we start Ephesians 6, he says, but that you may also know about my, about my circumstances, how I am doing. And Colossians, he says, as to all my affairs. In Ephesians, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. And then Colossians 4, 7, he's, he speaks of Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. And then Ephesians, we'll make everything known to you. Colossians 4, we'll bring you information. And he finishes in Ephesians, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. And then the end of Colossians 4, 8, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So you can see the parallels there, very similar even to the whole uh, contents of Ephesians and Colossians, very much the same. So Tychicus, as Paul finishes these letters to Ephesus and Colossae, he's saying similar things about Tychicus as the people there may not know Tychicus, but Paul can say, this is the man that I trust, he's a faithful servant, and he will tell you about the rest of my affairs. So that's this man, Tychicus, mentioned in 2 Timothy 4. Paul probably sends Tychicus with this letter to Timothy, a very urgent letter to Timothy. And so back to 2 Timothy, Paul is all but alone, and it's partly because some of his former companions were afraid of persecution or ashamed of being associated with Paul or had abandoned the faith entirely, or there are other faithful friends who were elsewhere for the sake of the gospel. Um, like Anesiphorus, for example. We go to chapter 4, verse 9. Paul says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, which is in what is today Yugoslavia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So Paul is... Uh, relatively alone now. He has uh, Luke with him, this beloved physician. Maybe he's there to help Paul not only as a friend, but as a doctor in his in his chains. He did want, uh, verse uh, 16 says, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be accounted, may it not be counted against them. So Paul is, again, perhaps feeling the, the sorrow of of being uh, forsaken at his first defense some years before. And so he's very eager to see Timothy one last time before his death. Uh, in the beginning of the letter, he says, To Timothy, my 
the beloved Son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank you, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. And then, verse 9, I already read in chapter 4, make every effort to come soon. And then verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. So, Paul is letting Timothy know, come come quickly, come as soon as you're able to. Now, when winter came in these days, travel would be difficult or impossible to get from Ephesus to Rome. Also, Paul doesn't know when he might be executed. If you wait too long, it might be too late. And we actually don't know for sure whether Timothy was able to make the trip. That's all we know about this particular episode, but trust that maybe he did. Now, the reason I'm giving you all this background in 2 Timothy is to get to verse uh, 13 of chapter 4. Paul, again, speaking to Timothy, says this, But when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. That's the, the focus here. The books, especially the parchments. Now, here's our trusty map again. Sorry, again, this one doesn't have Rome in it. But if Timothy is at Ephesus, and Rome is out here somewhere, uh, Ephesus, Timothy could travel by ship this way to Rome, uh, or he could go more overland. Here's Troas here. So he wants Timothy to go from Ephesus to Troas, and that's a distance, look at the scale here, maybe 100 miles or more. So not insignificant. He could take perhaps a ship to Troas. In any case, it's some distance for Timothy to go to see Carpus, of whom we know nothing besides this here, to get his cloak, because winter's coming, and to get the books and the parchments. This cloak, by the way, was like a blanket with holes for the head, something like a poncho, and it could double as a blanket to sleep in. So Paul is in, in chains. Winter's coming. He wants to have a cloak to keep him warm. But more than that, Paul apparently wanted to be able to study even when he was near death. And it, it may be that he wanted to be able to leave these precious possessions of his two believers in Rome at his departure. Now this word translated books is biblion, uh, from which we get the word Bible. So get the books. And this would have been made of papyrus uh, pages like this. These would be scrolls. So we talked about this some weeks ago. Here's an uh, example of some papyrus taking the reeds and laying them crosswise and pressing them down. So it makes a, a good writing material. He also, uh, by the way, these, these papyrus scrolls were written usually only on one side uh, where the strips were horizontal and thus easier to write on. Um, so you see scrolls today. They generally aren't written on front and back, but we see Jesus, don't we, in Revelation, having these scrolls with things written on both sides. But for the most part, you have a scroll. It's difficult to turn it over and read the back, even if you wanted to. So you read just the front, and so that wastes half of the, the writing surface. Originals in, in this day were probably written on papyrus and ink. Listen to Second John 12. John says, though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. 
So short letters like Philemon or Second or Third John, Jude, would have been written on a single sheet. You could take a, a sheet like this and write a, a small letter on that. And then if you had a larger one, you could write it on a papyrus rolls. Now here's uh, a picture of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Sorry, it's out of order. But we've seen these sorts of scrolls before. This is before the, the time of Paul here. But you can see how we have these these pages and they're glued together somehow and then written in columns. So you'd unroll it, you read a column, roll it a little further, read another column and so forth, all the way to the end. The longest books in the New Testament, you might, quick quiz, which books are longest in the New Testament? Which is the longest book in the New Testament? Luke is the longest, yes, and then next comes Acts, good, so Luke was has only two books but wrote a good portion of the New Testament. And then the next longest gospel is Matthew, and then we have John as the, the fourth longest book. And that's about as much as you could put on a single roll without it becoming unwieldy. You imagine coming to church with your Bible, and you know Thomas preaching on Hebrew, so you bring your Hebrew scroll. They wouldn't, people didn't have individual copies, of course, back then. But you can imagine what a headache it would be if it were the case. Instead of carrying your Bible in one hand, you'd have to have a, a whole uh, trunk load of, you know, turn, turn your Bibles to whatever, and then you'd have to go fetch that other scroll. It just it wouldn't work very well. So we're thankful for for type today and, and being able to carry our, our, our books in, in our hands or even on our phones now, of course. But that was certainly a, a factor, isn't it? If you wanted to write a book to somebody, if you, say the Gospel of Luke, to your f- friend um, Theophilus, you can't probably send him a whole bunch of scrolls. You want to keep in mind your, your length. Even today we have people... Uh, authors write books, you say you have 200 pages to write this book, so they have to fit it in that length. And so there are other things that Luke or John could have written, but he couldn't just fit them into the into that scroll. Now the originals of these papyrus writings were lost long ago. And papyrus didn't typically last very long, except under very, very good conditions. F.F. Bruce said this, only in such conditions as are provided by the dry sands of Egypt and the volcanic ash of Herculaneum have papyrus documents been preserved in humid climates, they soon rotted away. You can also think of the Dead Sea area as well, very dry. So uh, providentially, places where papyrus could last a long time for many centuries. Uh, Herculaneum, anybody remember Herculaneum from, from way back? Remember Mount Vesuvius, Pompeii, all that? So when that volcano exploded and the these cities were covered in ash immediately, that would preserve the the contents of this, this papyrus, but otherwise it was out in the open, it would rot very quickly. Now, the word, back to Second Timothy chapter 4, you have the books, especially the parchments. Uh, sorry, I went, need to go back. We talked about parchment as well, parchment made out of animal skins. This word translated parchment is membrana, so there's a this is a, that's a Latin word, membrana, made its way into Greek as a term for parchments, from which obviously we get the word membrane. And these animal skins were much more durable than papyrus, but much more expensive. So you have to figure, do I want something that's durable, or do I want something that's inexpensive? Just like we do with our cars and other things we have in our lives, right? You want a watch that's going to last, or you want a watch that you can afford? 
Um, these parchments, though, were more likely to be used for more precious writings. So you might have some books you really wanted to keep, probably in hardback, acid-free paper, that kind of thing. For stuff you don't care about, maybe you buy it in paperback, or cheaper, maybe buy it secondhand. That's a similar sort of thing. Do you want something that's going to last a long time? You want it on parchment, but it may cost you. And we don't know for sure what these books and parchments contained that Paul mentions here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, speculation is that they may have con- contained portions of the Old Testament, maybe copies of some of his epistles, and maybe some blank writing materials. In any case, Paul, even as he's looking towards his his death fairly soon, he didn't want his mind to remain idle even as his body was stuck in chains. And it's a good example to us as Paul didn't let himself coast, didn't let himself just, well, I'm in jail, I can't really do anything about it. He still wanted to work and to study and to, to know God's word more, even when he knew his time on earth was short. And by the way, it shows also this, this section how valuable and rare these items are. If I was going to travel across country and I was visiting a friend and they said, oh, can you, buy, by the way, get my book? I'm going, let's say I'm driving from Seattle to New York City. And they say, can you drive down to Dallas and get me my my books on your way? Well, it's not really on my way. Uh, it's, it's a lot of effort and work. I'll just, I'll just buy you a new book or I'll buy you a new coat. It wouldn't be worth the money and gas just to go that direction. But the fact that he wanted Timothy to go perhaps out of his way or spend some time to get this, this, these items shows how important they were to him, but also they're very costly, very, very valuable and difficult to get. And so if Paul had a cloak, it was worth it because they were expensive. If he had parchment, if he had uh, other writings, he wanted to have those taken. You couldn't just easily make copies of them or, or replace them. Now, as we continue to talk about the transmission of the New Testament, that, that whole introduction was just to give you an idea of these, the books, the parchments, the kind of things that people used to write on in those days. A couple of other terms I want to be somewhat familiar with. One is the term codex. We've talked about this before, codex. This is a development that came shortly after the time of Christ. And it's like our modern book. People said, hey, we've got these pages. We're only using one side. Why don't we write on both sides? How about that? And so they would, they could take these pages and they would write on both sides and then bind them on one edge, like we do our books. Um, and this, again, wasn't used in New Testament times, um, but shortly afterwards. And it's much more convenient to produce and to carry around than a scroll. Uh, you could use both sides and then if, if you drop a scroll, what happens? It unrolls and you have to roll it back up. If you drop a book, it, you pick it up again. Um, and it's also more convenient to read it, isn't it? If you're sitting it, you have it in your lap and you can, with a, a scroll, you have to kind of do some uh, maneuvering to get things to shift and, and turn it. This picture is a portion of what's called Codus Sinaiticus, and it's written in the middle of the 4th century. We'll talk about this more in a, maybe next week. And this contains the earliest complete copy of the Christian New Testament. It also has a large portion of the Greek Old Testament and so the, the very important, important book. Now this binding here is more modern, but you can see how we have the, the, the four columns here and it's written on both sides and there's even some space in the margins for notes and so forth. Another important term is palimpsest. Palimpsest. And it's from a Greek 
word that means scraped again. And these are parchments that were used again. Now remember, parchment was made out of animal skins, very valuable, very expensive. So if you are able to reuse a piece of parchment, you would do so. And now, using chemicals or high-tech scanning techniques, we can see what was originally written. This is a palimpsest. You can see on the left, this is what it would look like kind of to the naked eye. You can see down here, there's these sort of uh, areas where it looks like there's some kind of writing. Um, this this is medieval writing, but if you put through some scanning uh, processes, you can see here, this this is actually written the other direction. Uh, this is a portion of First Corinthians from the 400s. So somebody had this old piece of uh, parchment around. Maybe they couldn't hardly read, read it anymore, didn't know what it was. I need to write down some things, so I'll take this old piece of parchment and write what I want to on there. And nowadays we can figure out, in many cases, what this is. And uh, it's really amazing to see. I, I saw something last night, and I kind of went down a rabbit hole. I probably shouldn't have, but... Uh, somebody found some really old copies of Archimedes. Remember him, the, the Eureka guy, the mathematician, scientist from um, before the New Testament times. It wasn't written in those times, but there was a book of some of his, his works. And somebody had this, I think it was from the maybe 700s AD, I'm not sure. Somebody had taken this old book and had written a prayer book over it. Probably faded stuff, didn't know what it was. And, but now we were able to find some of these lost copies of Archimedes' works fr- from many centuries because we had this prayer book and we could find on this, this palimpsest, we're able to find what's behind the, the more obvious uh, writing in front. So very fascinating to see this sort of technology and how we can use this nowadays and God's providence to know some things that we might not be able to understand otherwise. So now this becomes another uh, copy of the New Testament that we have in our hands. I don't know offhand. For the most part, those things are single use that they haven't been written over. But yeah, these, these are things like that. Yeah, in, in some cases, sometimes they're more. Like I said, that that book of it's multiple books of Archimedes. It's just empty pages to them, maybe, or, or faded pages, so I'll just use it for my own prayer book. But most of our important copies, like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, those sorts of things, are are not palimpsests. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Most most commonly, anyway. You can imagine after a while. Well, we all have these sorts of books with the papyrus. If you use it a lot, it tends to wear out more than the, the parchment would. So they want to make those codices more durable if they could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We'll talk about it more next time, but it was written in the, the mid-300s, and it was founded in a monastery around Mount Sinai. And so I'm not sure if we know. They they believe there's there's three or four um, 
different hands that have written it. So you have this, this giant, made by monks, yeah, all those years ago. And so, just like if, if you were to um, say that the birthday cards from the elders, if we didn't sign our names, if you've gotten a couple from us, you know what our handwriting is, right? Um, not that you can read it necessarily, but you know that Tom's and Brett's and my handwriting is different. That's maybe not quite the same, but if you look, if you're really an expert, and by the way, you can go online and they've scanned all of Codex Sinaiticus, and it's, it's an amazing resource. And you can go through if you're interested and look. And if you can't read it, you can say, well, you can detect different writing styles, different hands. Um, that is, different, different scribes have their own little quirks, perhaps. And so you can detect three or four different kinds of writing in there. So over the course of some years, these scribes wrote down this codex and it had it all together and it providentially made it from the 300s to when it was discovered by sort of Western explorers, archaeologists at this monastery, and they didn't even necessarily know what it was. There's a lot of scary stories about how books like Sinaiticus were nearly burned for for warmth. They didn't know any better. You imagine taking these things that are 1,500 years old and burning them because you had no idea that this was the word of God written all those centuries before and how critical it was, but who knows how many things we've lost like that, but in any case, we have what we have and we're grateful to that. In fact, I found out that somebody found some leaves of Sinaiticus in the 1970s, so they found the bulk of them in the 1800s, but there were still a few they, they found somewhere behind something or buried somewhere. So there could be some of these things still around somewhere, and we'll find them as God wills. Okay, so we have Codex, we have Palimpsest, next we have Ostraca. Ostraca. And this is broken pieces of pottery, and this would, might be used by the very poor. Uh, many time when I need to write a quick note to myself or um, make a list of something, and I just I grab a piece of paper, maybe rip a piece of paper out of a notebook or uh, something that was used for something else, some junk mail, right back of an envelope. They would do that too. Uh, people who didn't have the money to go buy papyrus weren't able to afford parchment, certainly. They might have a broken piece of pottery. Remember the pot sherds and jobs that he used to scrape himself? He could also use that to write on. And so if you're able to write, you might be able to use this. And this picture here, um, by the way, some New Testament writings, of course, you'd find on these other sacred texts, but you, people have also found shopping lists. They found sales receipts on pieces of pottery like this. This is a picture that shows an ostracon from the 7th century, and this is Luke 22, verses 70-71, obviously. Right, we can all read this. I can't read it. Um, I can maybe pick out a couple letters, but it says, uh, this is, they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need have we a witness of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So that portion of the trial of Jesus is on this piece of pottery. This says it's from Upper Egypt. Yes, that's right. Yeah, up Lower Egypt. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. It's it's the elevation, not not north and south. Good. So there's so we have Codex, the the book. We have the Palimpsest. These are the reused parchments and ostraca, which are these pieces of pottery that would have some writing on them. And they're, they're 
large caches of these, I saw something that somebody found a, a big bunch of 18,000 of little pieces like this in some place in Egypt. Just discarded, it, was, it would be trash. How many of you save all your receipts? Probably not. So you just throw them away, and people find piles of them nowadays. Now, as we talked about in previous lessons, it would have taken some time for the various books of the New Testament to make their way around the Christian community. But by the late 1st century or early 2nd century, there were already collections floating around. So you have Paul's letters, or the Gospels, say. And as they circulated, copy after copy would have been created by interested churches. So maybe you are a church in one location, and you know that there's a church next to you that has a copy of the four Gospels, or a copy of Paul's epistles, and you don't have them in your church. You might say, hey, can we borrow them to make our own copies, or send a scribe over there to make a copy for our own church, so we can preach from them. And again, individuals wouldn't have copies themselves, unless they were very wealthy, but you would be able to share one as a church, even as the synagogues had their own copies of the Old Testament. It was very expensive and time-consuming to create these copies. Imagine how long it would take for you to hand-write even a, a, sh- a small portion of the New Testament. Not to say that all the Old and New Testaments together. But some churches would have the means to have their own, and even, as I said, when it was very rare for individuals to have their own. Yes? Yeah, well, so many of the Gentile churches started out as Jewish churches. So they, they in fact, the, the structure of the church, the individual churches back then was much like the synagogues, wasn't it? So I think they imported probably a lot of those things. Uh, I don't know how much the ancients, um, the, the Gentiles would have sermons and that kind of thing like the, like the Jews did in their worship services, how much of the, the text really was important to them. Probably not so much, but the the, the Jewish influence, one of them on the church, is to be focused on the text and preaching the text, preach the word, and that's what, what Paul would do. So as they would have a church, perhaps without a copy of the scriptures, they would want to know what, what Paul's uh, epistle said for themselves. Now, we can determine that churches early on had some familiar, familiarity with epistles written to other churches. Here's interesting thing from F.F. F. Bruce. He says this, when Clement, you might remember Clement of Rome, he was a leader in the Roman church about A.D. 95, writes a letter to the Corinthian church. He knows not only the letter which Paul wrote to the Romans, but one at least of those which he wrote to the Corinthians as well. Take up the epistle of the blessed Paul the apostle, he writes. What did he write first to you in the beginning of the gospel? Of a truth he charged you in the spirit concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then you would formed parties. Does that sound familiar? But you, know, you say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. So Clement in Rome, several decades after 1 Corinthians was written, he was in Rome, he knew about the letter to the Corinthians. So when Clement wrote to the Corinthians, he could refer to that and knew that they knew it. So there was presumably a copy of 1 Corinthians in the hands of the Roman church. And so the New Testament text, text was passed from, from church to church and down from generation to generation by different kinds of people. There would be some professional scribes who were very skilled and precise. 
and others who may have been ver- barely literate, but who were desperate to have the scriptures for themselves. You can imagine maybe somebody who didn't know the letters, but they would just copy like a child would, copy the letters for themselves uh, for their church. And some had the leisure to copy them meticulously, and others were under severe persecution. So they might have to copy them while hiding. So instead of being in a monastery where you can sort of copy at your leisure in relative safety, you could be in a catacomb somewhere with an oil lamp uh, trying to scratch out uh, copies of God's word with the threat of uh, Romans or somebody else coming to, to kill you. They want to copy them and disseminate them before the older copies were confiscated and destroyed. This happened frequently in the early years of the church. The Romans would come in and they'd grab all the writings they could and they would burn them. But it's because of this widespread dissemination of the text of the New Testament that we can have such confidence in the New Testament that it's very close to that of the originals. So here's a quote from um, Norman Geisler and William Nix. And we talked about the Old Testament text and how we see the Dead Sea Scrolls compare it to the Masoretic text, which is from the, the 10th century or so. So over a millennium, the the text of the Old Testament changed very little. So they say here, the integrity of the Old Testament text had been established in the transmission of the Masoretic tradition and was confirmed with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The accuracy of the Old Testament text is largely the result of the meticulous care taken by rabbinical scholars in the transmission process. So these are professional scholars, professional scribes. The fidelity of the New Testament text, however, rests on a different basis altogether. The New Testament relies on a multitude of manuscript evidence. Counting Greek copies alone, the New Testament text is preserved in some 5,366 partial and complete manuscript portions that were copied by hand from the 2nd through the 15th centuries. By way of contrast, most other books from the ancient world survive in only a few and late manuscript copies. Now, this book is from 1986, and so he says 5366. There are more recent numbers that claim 5,700 or even 6,000 or more. F.F. Bruce said this, If the very number of manuscripts increases the total of scribal corruptions, it supplies at the same time the means of checking them. Uh, Trying to figure out how much to try to get through here. Uh, Yes. Yeah, there are some that are scraps of paper. Yeah, so they, they count those too. So you have anything a small piece of paper or papyrus to a large thing like Sinaiticus, or you could have, as you mentioned, lectionaries. Those are kind of um, books for for church services that have quotes there, quotes from church fathers. But this is this is this is manuscripts of the, the New Testament itself. But we will they do use those for for checking. Um, I've you have had to copy things by hand. That's obviously difficult. It's time-consuming even today. But imagine if your, the letters were all in uppercase and there was no spaces or punctuation to speak of. And imagine further, this writing occurred centuries before the introduction of corrective lenses. You know, they didn't have glasses back then, of course, and electric lights, not to mention photocopiers. So you had 
these expensive materials you're, you're writing on, you have to find your own ink and quills, however you're writing with, with it. Find people who actually know how to write, in most cases. And even in good conditions, it's not always easy to see. You've got an elderly scribe who's kind of maybe lost a step and can't see quite as well, squinting at things, and has his his original here, and he keeps copying here and trying to be very careful, but maybe not as as precise as he used to be. Now, there's different kinds of errors, and we want to be forthright about this. We don't have, as I said, copies, or we don't have the originals. We don't have photocopies of them. And so we look at these thousands of pieces or whole pieces of the of the New Testament, we can see some errors creep in, different kinds of things. For example, mishearing. Um, similar words. You could do the same thing in, in English. We have homophones, things that sound the same. Um, for example, there's a, a word, camelos, uh, or camelos. So we have rope versus camel. When Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, now there's a similar word that means rope. And that would also kind of make sense. It's easier for a rope to go through eye of needle. Right? That's also impossible, isn't it? But is it camelos or camelos? There's a difference in only uh, one letter in in the Greek, and it would, could sound the same. To if, if I was, let's say, I have a, a group of scribes here, and I say, I'm going to read the text, and you write the text for me. If you're transcribing it, you might hear it not quite right. Another example uh, is in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace is echomen, or let us have peace. So we say we have peace or let us have peace. Echomen, the second one has an omicron, has the, the line over it indicates an omicron. So just, again, one letter difference that would sound much the same. And while the interpretation may be different, both meanings are valid. So how do you determine which one is right? Uh, there's also misspellings or variants in spelling. Uh, the name John in Greek, for example, may have one or two N's, just like you could have John, J-O-H-N, or J-O-N. Uh, there's something called a movable new. You might know the, the word, uh, the, the letter new is, a, is a equivalent to our N. And sometimes the Greek N can be added when it's before a word that begins with a vowel. Like when we say N or, or A, it's a similar thing in Greek. And so it may have that new or sometimes not. So if you're writing it, you might write it with a new or without. It doesn't change the meaning. It's just a way of sort of spelling, you might say. The meaning's not affected by any of that. Um, misremembering. Uh, if you were write, looking at this original and making a copy, you might misremember as you write, as you copy it, if you're not being careful. So in Ephesians 5.9, it speaks of the fruit of the light consists in all good things, but some texts read the fruit of the Spirit. They might be familiar with Galatians, and so they see the fruit of the Spirit there. They, they think fruit of the, and, and you might say Spirit, instead of light. Um, might have a wrong word division. You can combine two words into one, or you might split one into two. This could be uh, difficult, especially when we have these letters uh, packed together. Like this thing, God is nowhere, or God is now here, depending on how you divide that word, if you divide it at all. Very different meaning but just exactly the same letters. And if they were all crammed together, only context would tell you what the writer is actually saying. You could uh, skip lines. So if you're looking here and writing here, you might your eye might drop to the next line, again, if you're not very careful. If you see the same word or, or letters in a subsequent line, it can confuse you as to where you were. Uh, you might repeat lines. 
you might write a word or phrase twice that should be written once or vice versa. <clears throat> you might accidentally omit words, of course, or add words out of habit. There are cases where one text will read the Lord Jesus Christ, where other texts just say Jesus Christ, and somebody might write the Lord Jesus Christ just because that's what they're used to, to writing or hearing. Uh, you might transpose words or letters. Many times Paul refers to Jesus Christ. Sometimes he refers to Christ Jesus. And if you're, again, not being careful, you might transpose them yourself in your mind. Another interesting thing, this is based on the Greek, but in New American Standard Version, we see Mark 14, verse 65. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received, that's alabon, him with slaps in the face. If you have the New King James or the King James, it's something like this. The officers struck him with the palms of their hands, abalone, which means they threw, or abalone, with two L's, they were throwing. So, see, alabon, if you uh, switch the L and the B, you get the other word. So it's either uh, receiving, or it means throwing, or they were throwing. So, again, you could just transpose a couple of letters, different meaning, but... Not a, not a great difference in what's what's happening. You know that these these men are abusing Jesus. This one I find it rather interesting. This would be a misreading of similar letters. So First Timothy three sixteen says this in the New American Standard: By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, and so forth. But in the King James or in that text tradition, it says God was manifested in the flesh. Now, why does the New American Standard say, he who, and why does New King James say God? Or people will say, the New American Standard is taking God out of the Bible. There's some King James only people who say stuff like that. Or because the New American Standard doesn't say Lord Jesus Christ, it just says Jesus Christ in some cases. That means that the New American Standard translators are taking the Lord out of the New Testament. That's not the case at all. It's just a manuscript tradition. So we have, for example, here's a, a copy of a portion of uh, a manuscript of this of this place in the scriptures, First Timothy three sixteen, and this is an uh, Omicron Sigma Hos, which means who. Now here's another trans uh, another uh, text where we have a theta, which is the same as an Omicron with a line in it and a sigma, and then notice there's a line above it. So some scribes would use this as a shorthand. So Theos, if you were writing this a lot, you might want to just shrink it a bit. So you could just write a theta, a sigma, put a line over it, and that becomes an abbreviation for God, Theos. So this this one, we'll, we'll call it, it looks like an OC to us. And this looks like an OC with a line through the O and a line across the top. And if you weren't being careful how you read this or wrote this, you might easily replace who for God or God for who. As, as you're transmitting these things. So it's not an issue of the New American Standard saying they don't believe that Jesus is God. It's just a matter of how this was transmitted. Who made the mistake first? Was it, was it, is this right or is this right? And the New American Standard says probably this is right. And the King James, because the King James people who, who did this didn't have as many manuscripts as we do. They only had a, a handful of manuscripts. So this was their text tradition. Yeah.
Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure exactly if this was just a, a shorthand or if it had some other meaning beyond, like you said, trying to avoid writing out the whole name of God or something. But I, I'd say it's probably the, the former. They're, they're just writing a lot. And so it's just a, a way of writing. Like people will write Xmas instead of Christmas. X is the Greek word chi, and it's just an abbreviation for, for Christ. our time here. We're running late. I sorry I didn't quite get through all of these. There's a few more I think are, are of interest, but I don't want to rush it too much. So we'll just pick up the last few next time and we'll continue further. Any final questions before we wrap up? Right. That's a uh, Good question, and it, it, we'll I think talk about this more next time. I'm not going to go through the whole history of the Greek alphabet, but there, uh, for example, a sigma. Uh, again, depending on your writing style and whether it's capital letters or lowercase letters, but when I was learning Greek, there's sigma is a little o with a little tail, like pigtail at the top. But at the end of a, a word, it becomes more like an s. Or you might have read some things like the the Congress of the United States. It has that s. It looks like an f. That's the way they wrote S's, some S's in those days. And so it's really just a different writing style. Um, this, this C is a, I believe it's, it, it's a sigma at the end of a, of a word. But I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? You want to do a long, long series on the history of the, I'm not the right guy to do that for sure. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have preserved your word. It hasn't been preserved in the way that many skeptics think it ought to have been preserved, but you have been there all along preserving your word, and you've given men the skills to understand these texts, to translate them, to compare them one to the other, and and make a very good uh, estimate of what that word actually says, and we are <clears throat> blessed with a a lot of text, a lot of manuscripts, and so many that makes it difficult even to, to get our mind around. But we have perhaps too much information, not not enough information, and we're grateful for that. That we can have confidence in your word. It's not just some ancient text, but it's the very word of God that can change our hearts and bring us to faith in Christ. We pray that you'd help us to grow closer to him, even after this somewhat academic discussion. May this increase our confidence in your word and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.